free indeed from John chapter 8 verses 31 to 59 as we continue our series in the Gospel of John. Some people have tried to buy it. Millions have sacrificially given their lives for it. Many are willing to kill for it. It is, of course, none other than the word freedom. But many people today do not really understand what true freedom is. Most people define it as being able to do whatever you feel like doing. That is their definition of freedom. And our society is paying the price for this type of freedom. Freedom is a tricky thing. On the one hand, it is something that we hold dear as citizens of this beautiful country with a firm democracy and something that was fought long and hard to achieve. If you're ever in doubt about that, uh, take a visit to the War Memorial in Canberra to understand the price of freedom, both in our land and as we sent soldiers, fathers and sons and brothers and uncles to fight and free other people from oppression. On the other hand, it would appear that we have gone overboard when the standards and limits that have served us well for so long are systematically removed from the structure of our society. Those things, those values that everybody in the past have just understood as being issues at the base of our society, the way that we treat each other with respect and with dignity, the more that we remove those structures, the more laws that the people in Canberra have to come up with in order to enable us to somehow get along. Those things that were taken for granted suddenly become legalised because people aren't following through. A better definition of freedom perhaps should be being able to be all that you were meant to be. I'll repeat that. Being able to be all that you were meant to be. This takes us all the way to the garden, doesn't it, that definition. And perhaps the only thing that we could add to that is being able to be all that you were meant to be under God. The Bible certainly has a lot to say about freedom. And you will find that the countries that have the strongest free democracies have in fact based their constitutions on the principles of the Bible. But these very foundations are now being removed and people somehow expect that once the foundation is removed that the structure will still be standing. But for how long? As the structures are starting to shake. 
One of the first casualties when that happens, of course, will be our freedoms. This is not fantasy. This is what history tells us. Just to give you something of an update, uh, something that happened in Ireland. In 2014 in Ireland, Gareth Lee, a member of the local LGBT group called Queer Space, requested a custom cake be created with the slogan Support Gay Marriage placed on top. They could have gone to any bakery and they and their request would have been answered, no problem. But they targeted this particular bakery owned by Christians. Asher's Bakery is run by a Christian family who politely declined the request as they have done with other requests in the past. And this went through a court battle over four years and about half a million dollars in legal expenses. And just recently the court found in favour, surprisingly, in favour of the Ashes Bakery. This is the highest court in Ireland. And after many years the court found in in, in finding favour of Ashes Bakery, they pointed out that there is an obvious difference between refusing a service on the grounds of someone's protected characteristics and refusing to create a message with which the creator disagrees with for reasons of conscience. You see, the whole purpose of equality law is to protect people from being discriminated against, not not to compel individuals to promote ideas with which they disagree. And this is something that suddenly we have to find ourselves speaking against. And as a church and as Christians, we can see what is happening. It is quite possible that soon sermons like this what I'm delivering to you this morning will be heavily redacted. Though we'll, I will have to submit it to an authority to approve it before I preach it on a Sunday morning. If not, forbidden. So let us not take for granted but be thankful for the physical and spiritual freedoms that we do enjoy. And the passage before us has a lot to say about this. Obviously there are other passages in Scripture But Jesus is here debating with the Jews. As the chapters progress in John, and particularly in chapter 7 and chapter 8, that his arguments are getting more and more intense as he asserts his authority by delivering one blow after another. At the end of the chapter, verse 69, they are, they, are, they are ready to silence the Son of God for good. But, but uh, under God's care, he's able to sneak through. It gives us a, uh, a reassurance that until God says so, says so, we are protected under his care. He has the final say on our lives. So let's look at it. We'll open up with a theme for us this morning. The theme is verse 31. 
To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. Now, we will return to this declaration at the conclusion of our message this morning, but it does set us up for the matter under discussion, for it, it, it summarises, I think, quite well what Christian discipleship is really all about. It is a, it is a declaration that discipleship is the, the only true path to freedom by being all that you were meant to be under God's original design for us. So let's study the passage from verse 33. They answered him, this is an illusion. Well, the, the, the subject is an illusion, verse 33. So they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? This is what the Jews are saying. An illusion, as you know, is a this is a deceptive appearance or impression. That's, or it can also be a false idea or belief. That's an illusion. It is hard to see, it is hard to see how these Jews could claim that they were never in bondage to anyone when their history is rife with captivities. It's like they were always taking turns, other nations were taking turns to overrun the Jews that were captives by the Egyptians, by the Babylonians, by the Assyrians and now by Rome. Now let's give them the benefit of the doubt here and, and, and maybe give them the benefit of by saying, look, they're not referring to physical bondage, they're referring to spiritual bondage. And they might have a case. In other words, nobody could tell the Jews the Israelites, how to worship. Even though they were overrun by other nations, they have always been free to worship as they liked or fight for death for that right. To this day, to this day, they will not allow anyone to change the way that they worship. They will do so anywhere, any place, any time or they will pay with their lives. These are the committed Jews I'm talking about. And here they were boasting in the fact that they were part of a chosen race, that they were confident of God's approval. The Jews assumed their biological ancestry as the basis for their relationship with God. Put simply, they thought being Jewish was the same as being saved. And therefore, that they were entitled to all of God's blessings. But Jesus will tell them that they are wrong. Being Jewish, yes, is indeed a privilege. If you want to have a list of the privileges, Paul gives them in Romans chapter 9. But it is not the same. It is not the same as being saved. And this is a real problem today. Because many people are under the same or a similar illusion or even delusion. Most people think that they're okay the way they are. They grew up in a Christian family, used to go to church, Sunday school. I grew up, 
Yeah, I'm right. I was baptized as a kid or even as an infant in a church somewhere, somehow, and I'm fine. I've got my ticket. As a result, there is no urgency to change for they cannot see how desperate their situation really is. There is a delusion. They think they are free, but they are not. They're actually slaves. So what does, it look, what does it look like? Bondage, verses 34 to 36. What does it look like? Bondage. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. When you let yourself do wrong, whether in attitude or in action, you become a slave of that wrong. Gradually, you will slip under its control. And later, when you wake up and you want to break it, you will find you cannot. You are indeed a slave to sin. And once into the bondage of sin, it makes a slave out of you and you cannot stop it. It is much more than simply a matter of the will. It's like the, the cigarette smoker who says, it's, easy to, to, it's, it's really easy to stop smoking. Trust me, I've done it a hundred times. Now, strictly speaking, a slave can be sold off. But if you are God's son, no one, no one can sell you off. You are secure. The true security then is the acceptance through the son, which takes us to one of these great verses in the Bible. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. And, and there is something here that, that we lose in the English language. For in the original, there are actually two words for the word that is translated free. The first appearance of free, the first translated free means to set at liberty. It, it, it is somebody, it's like somebody being set free, a slave who has been set free. The second word, the second occurrence here of the word free refers to one who is freeborn. Freeborn. Jesus is saying that the freedom he gives us when he saves us is so complete, it is as if we have never been slaves in the first place. It is like we were freeborn sons of God in his household with all the benefits of somebody who is freeborn in his original household all along. Can you appreciate that? Can we have an amen to that? 
that indeed it is not just something that, that looks good, it is good. With all the privileges of sonhood. So who's your daddy? Verses 41 to 45. You're going to remember this one. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. You belong to your father, the devil, and you, are, you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Just like earlier in the chapter, they are when they insulted Jesus about his parentage, they go back to that. They are insulting Jesus because by basically calling him a bastard. <gasps> An illegitimate child born outside of marriage. Terms like this and another term, SOB, are meant to insult our parentage. Something that is so dear, something that it is so special to us. Uh, even today when, when people swear, they use words like this in order to denigrate you, to destroy your character, to devalue you as a person because of where you were born, how you were born and under which circumstances you were born. This is what the world does to us. Something that is so beautiful that the family that is given a birth and, and the world tries to destroy that. That's the devil. We'll be talking about that. So Jesus, they, they're accusing Jesus and Jesus responds by saying, yeah, okay, so, so let's talk about parentage. If you really love God, you would also love me because the two of us go together, hand in hand. And he doesn't stop there. He, he then tells them in no uncertain terms who their real father is. This is about as hard a word that you will find Jesus ever speaking. The clearest, and here we have the clearest description of Satan and his work. Jesus says, he was a murderer from the beginning. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language a liar and the father of lies. We are in a spiritual battle. Principalities and powers in the unseen world are infecting and affecting the way that we 
live our daily lives. But you are vulnerable only to the degree in which you believe the enemy's lies. If you do not believe the enemy's lies, you will not be vulnerable. He has little power over you. It is only through his lies and deception that he will try to seduce you. The grass is greener on the other side. If you believe that stuff as a Christian, you are missing out. God is holding out on you. Why why do you have to restrict sexual intercourse to marriage when anybody can do it anywhere, anytime? It doesn't matter. I'll tell you one thing, there would be no venereal disease or AIDS or anything like this if everybody kept sexual relationships within the marriage, would they? All these lies. So when you believe his lies, you get seduced further and further away from God our Father and suddenly you start believing the lies of the enemy. That's what Satan did in the garden. You start to mistrust the word of God. Bit by bit, over a period of time, and perhaps at the beginning, it's a little bit, it's a little bit hard to uh, know the difference, but in this, let's say, this bottle of water here, there's a lot of drops of water in here. And if I were to drop just one drop of arsenic in here, you wouldn't be able to pick up, make out the difference, would it? So, a drop of, of lies, a drop of poison, a drop of arsenic into a whole bottle or a bucket of fruit doesn't seem like a lot, does it? And yet, it can be deadly. And it looks the same. It looks like the truth. Well, that's the truth, mate. No, it's not. It could actually be poison. And last week we spoke of one of his most effective ploys, which is to disguise himself as an angel of light. Most of his lies are false ideas about who you are, where you came from, remember, your parentage, and where you are going. So when we refuse to believe his lies and we allow the Father to define us, we can actually stand against him we will be able to to see that even though he might look like an angel of light, he's actually a father of lies. And James gives us an order. He says says to us, 
Submit to God first and then resist the devil. Do not try resisting the enemy without first submitting to God. Submit to God, resist the devil. You cannot have it the other way. Let's go to verse 46, the only sinless one, verse 46. Can any one of you prove me guilty of sin? Jesus asked. This is a remarkable challenge, isn't it? Here is a man who could stand up in public before his enemies and openly ask them, which one of you convicts me of sin? Speak up now or forever hold your peace. Remember that at the start of the chapter, Jesus challenges the woman's accusers, the woman who had been caught in adultery. Jesus challenged the accusers, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. And what happened is this, from the oldest to the youngest, they all walked away and the only one who could rightly condemn her because he was the only one, he is the only one without sin, he didn't. There was recently a, uh, a drawn out process in electing the Supreme Court judge in the US, uh, Brett Kavanaugh. His accusers went all the way back to his high school days to try and dig up dirt on him in order to discredit his character and disqualify him from sitting as judge in the highest court in the land. There was a lot of toing and froing. It got quite ugly, didn't it? Now, irrespective of the truthfulness of the events or not, the fact the fact that that there is no comeback, no redemption, no forgiveness in the eyes of the world for alleged things committed while young, to me, it's very disturbing. Don't you find it disturbing? In some twisted way, you see, in some twisted way, Satan, the accuser, the Bible calls him the accuser, in some twisted way, Satan has a very high legalistic moral code as well. Do you believe that? He actually knows the Bible better than you do. He's memorised the Bible. He knows what's good and what's evil. And yet, he is the father of lies. And it is disturbing because in a convoluted way people do hold on to a scent of morality out there. But think of your life and my life if there is no possibility of redemption. If people could go to your high school days and your primary school days and Look at all the things that you've done and say, eh, you call yourself a Christian. I know you from 30, 40 years ago. What are you going on about? Who 
can stand. Who can stand? There's only one sinless one, Jesus. And if he declares you holy, then the world cannot accuse you. Satan cannot accuse you. You are free because the Son has made you part of his household. Do not believe the lies. And yes, when I say lies, it is shows its truth. Yes, you might have done those stuff in your childhood days, in your youth. But God has forgiven you. That is the truth. If you have truly repented, that is. He has forgiven you. Do not go back there. Because the Son has set you free. So Jesus here challenged them challenges them to go into his past and, and see if they can dig up anything that is sinful. With Jesus, obviously, there was nothing there. Because the world, the world can only go and find wrongful acts, the stuff that we do. But as we know, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount actually raised the bar higher where sin is not just the wrongful acts, the things that we do, but the wrongful thoughts as well, way before they become acts. Jesus was perfect in both thought and action. He set the standard and he surpassed his own standard. Praise be to God. Verse 51, a wrongful promise. Oh, sorry, a wrongful promise. Now, that would be a lie, wouldn't it? A wonderful promise. A wonderful promise. Verse 51, very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. The words, very truly I tell you, indicate this if Jesus could put it any other way, he would. But the way that we can understand it, he is saying, this is really, really true. This is with absolute certainty what I'm telling you. That anyone who keeps his word will never see death. I hope you can appreciate just what a wonderful promise this is. And, and I know I'm giving you so much stuff here. It's like drinking water from a hydrant right now. And I hope you're taking notes because this is... I'm giving you gold, right? All right? Oh, stop it, Paul. All right? Stop it right there. Let me, let me just ponder for a moment. Well, you've got no time. You can ponder when you get home. Go and reread this stuff. It's a, it's a marvelous promise. It, it, the only one who has conquered death does not say, He who keeps my word will never die, because Christians do die. I've, I've seen it, and so have you. He even makes use of a double negative to emphasise his claims. He says he will never, ever see death. That is what he's saying. They will not see death because they will pass from life to instant glory. That's a powerful expression. 
in the Paul Mosichuk translation of the Bible. Yes, you will die, but you will not be there when it happens. You get that? Sarah Winchester. Sarah Winchester's husband made a fortune by manufacturing and selling rifles. If you go back to the Western cowboy movies and all of that, you would know what a, a Winchester rifle is. And after he died of influenza in 1918, she moved to San Jose, California. And because of her grief and her interest in spiritism, Sarah sought out a medium to contact her dead husband. This stuff has been going on for a while. And the medium told her, as long as you keep building your home, you will never face death. Hands up all those who believe this. Okay, no, I'm glad. I nearly saw a hand there. I nearly saw <laughs> So Sarah um, believed the spiritus and so she bought an unfinished 17-room mansion and started to expand it. The project continued and continued until she died at the age of 85. It cost $5 million at the time when workmen uh, earned 50 cents a day. So it's so much money. Uh, It's so easy to to say that she probably spent a billion dollars on this house in today's money. The mansion had 150 rooms, 13 bathrooms, 2,000 doors, 47 fireplaces, 10,000 windows. And Mrs. Winchester left enough materials so that they could have continued building for another 80 years. Today, the house stands as nothing more than a tourist attraction and as a silent witness to the dread of death who holds so many people in bondage. That if you keep yourself busy, you keep your mind active and everything else that you will never die. How many people believe this lie? You will not see death. But you know what? We will see death. And we finish with a great I am. Verses 56 to 59. The great father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. And at this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Jesus is not holding back, is he? He's just, bang, he just goes back for more and more. He's putting the squeeze on these men. He does not compromise with them or try to 
calm them down. Look, I really didn't mean that. I don't want to upset. I don't want to hurt your feelings. Heaven forbid. Uh, on the contrary, he hits harder and harder each time, each claim more staggering than the last one. In fact, he enrages them by deliberately claiming things that they just cannot accept. You know, so much so that they are determined to get rid of him. Imagine the impact of this claim that Abraham looked forward to this day, that, that Jesus saying that, that, that Abraham, their, their father, their physical, their spiritual father, he actually looked forward to this day and, and these Jews are going out of their minds. Absolute consternations, you know, the veins appearing in their eyes, you know, they're frothing at the mouth. Man, they can't hold themselves back. Jesus is claiming his divinity right there and then when he literally says, before Abraham came into being, I existed. He uses a name that is used throughout the Old Testament to describe the ultimate character of God. I am. There go, I'm Yahweh. And this verse helps us to understand how to read the Old Testament as well. It is one of those keys that we find in the New about reading the Old. Many feel perhaps a little sorry for those faithful believers in the Old Testament who were never able to appreciate the glory of Christ his incarnation, his life and his resurrection, the way that we do. But they lived in faith, looking forward to to the day. And true believers, true believers actually saw the day. They could see more than what we give them credit for because they saw through the eyes of faith. And this is why Jesus is saying here, that Abraham rejoiced because he knew that the day was coming and God was going to do something special through the Son. And from this, we can see how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament promises in so many ways. So let's uh, conclude back where we started. Remember how we started with verse 31? Let me read it to you again. This is a discipleship summary here, right here. If you want to know what discipleship is all about, John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you, had, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is great word. This is a wonderful word right here. Firstly, it begins with belief. Jesus said that these, said this is only to the Jews who had believed in him. It, discipleship begins with belief. You have to believe. No belief, then nothing else is, is promised, nothing else follows, nothing else is, is, is guaranteed. It begins with belief. Secondly, it says hold on to his teaching. This is what we are doing here. This is why we, we are continue to, to prepare this stuff and to, to teach you. And not just here, but in our, in our 
in our kids' church and in our different ministries when we study the Word. You need to hold on to it. Hold on to that teaching. The teaching is delivered, but you need to hold on to it. Otherwise, you're just going to bounce right off. Thirdly, know the truth. You will know the truth. This is a great result. To be able, in this world in which we live, through social media, through the news, and even the weather reports, my goodness, let's try and scare the living wits out of you with everything that is happening. Huh? Cataclysmic and this and that. and this. No, you, you're able to recognise the truth from the lies. You will know the truth. And then you submit to the truth. And lastly, the promise. Jesus promises that when you follow him, you hear his word and continue in it, there's a wonderful thing that will happen. The truth will set you free. There are many brothers and sisters stuck in prisons around the world, even now. Physical prisons. And yet they are free in Christ. They sing new songs like Paul and Silas in prison, in physical walls, but they are free, they are free. They are freer than you and I are, actually. And yet here we think we've got this delusion of freedom and yet many people are imprisoned by, by their sin, by the thoughts, by, by the lies of Satan. But when you, you begin to understand the truth, submit to the truth, the truth will set you free. This is a marvellous claim and only Jesus can do this. The truth will deliver you. It will allow you to be all that you were ever meant to be under God. Irrespective of sickness, irrespective of financial situations, irrespective of how and when you were born, under whatever circumstances, you are a son and a daughter of the King. And that is marvellous. It's a wonderful promise. So we're going to finish by...